A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. I always say, if you haven't seen Parks and Rec, (laughs) traditional community engagement is done through public meetings. Typically, they're held weekdays after 5 p.m. These meetings are supposed to give community members a voice in what's being built in their neighborhoods. But unfortunately, oftentimes, the people who attend these meetings don't reflect the majority of their neighborhoods. On this episode, I'm speaking with Karin Brandt, CEO and founder of CoUrbanize. An urban planner by trade, Karin launched the CoUrbanize platform to power more effective community engagement throughout the planning and development process. Karin holds a master's degree in city planning from MIT and began her career in urban development at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, where she co-edited Infrastructure and Land Policies. In 2018, she was selected as one of Real Estate Forum's 50 under 40 in commercial real estate. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. So, Karin, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, it's pretty cool. You actually grew up in an area that I happened to as well as a young kid in the middle of the US in a little state called Missouri. And sometimes people call it misery, and we won't call it that today. But you mentioned St. Louis being a key component for you growing up. I actually grew up down in Springfield. So that was kind of a cool little coincidence. But you actually moved around a lot as well as a kid. So why don't you set the stage for us? Tell us, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, I was really fortunate to live in a lot of different types of communities, a range of communities with different socioeconomic situations from towns as small as 300 people, medium towns, and then also a city like St. Louis. And so how did those wide range of communities impact your lens having grown up from small town to larger cities? You mentioned socioeconomic situations and conditions. Just tell me how that impacted you just growing up. So I was able to see firsthand that the success of the community where you live can really have an enormous impact in terms of the opportunities that you have available to you. And this is really one of the big reasons why I became so passionate about urban planning. Some of the towns that I lived in, like a lot of the the Midwest small town communities, were economically deprived or they were dying towns Um, with the change of farming where, for example, both of my grandfathers were farmers and the next generation, nobody became a farmer. Now you don't have a lot of small farmers, you have big, big farmers. And that whole industry has really changed and that means that a lot of small towns are economically struggling. And they're looking to find new industries. And a lot of people are just leaving towns and moving to urban areas. And so there's a big demographic shift that has a lot of impacts on just the outcomes that people have or the opportunities that they have available to them. And you mentioned, so you lived in St. Louis for a while, but you also lived in some small towns in Iowa. I know that we talked a little bit about you know having grown up seeing some alcoholism and drug use and sort of the depressed nature of those towns, which is probably really difficult to see. But at the same time, it sounds like that really connected you deeply to this idea of 
urban planning and, and understanding long-term effects of opportunity or lack of opportunity on these towns? Yeah, it definitely did. So I think when you move as an outsider into a small town, you are very much an outsider. And when I got to college, I had a real passion for working with immigrant communities and helping them really integrate into a different community, into a different country and connect to different systems. And so uh, I felt like, although this is a strange connection, but I felt like my experience as an outsider in some of these small communities really built my passion for working with immigrant communities. And that's a big part of my my focus in undergrad and then um, my work and after undergrad and then again in grad school. And so setting the stage again, so you're in Iowa and you're heading off to school. And I think you mentioned to me that schooling options were typically U of I and ISU. So where did you end up studying and what did you go to school for? Yeah, well, I graduated high school. My senior year, I moved to a town of 300 people. And I think I was one of 27 students who graduated in our class. Just a handful of us went to to university. And so I applied to both the University of Iowa and Iowa State. Didn't even cross my mind to apply out of state. I wrote the applications myself, did the financial aid myself, and I took the best package that I got. And I was really excited to go to Iowa State. It's a whole new world for me. I loved moving from such a small community to a school that was, I think, 27,000 students at the time. And one of the biggest opportunities that I had at Iowa State was working with really amazing professors. And I got connected with a professor who was doing really interesting research on rural sustainable livelihoods in Uganda. And I became his research assistant. And I worked with him for about two and a half years really closely. And I got very passionate about this work. And it led me to study abroad in Ghana, in West Africa. I spent about eight months there. It was a really transformational experience going to school there and then working there in the summer. And through that experience, I was able to see Accra, the capital of Ghana, incredible city that was just urbanizing so rapidly. When I got back to Iowa State, there was one professor across the university who happened to be Ghanaian. And he was in the urban planning department, which I hadn't come across them before. Urban planning wasn't on my radar at all. And I took his class my senior year and I fell in love with urban planning. Had I known about this major, this profession before, I probably would have switched, but it was my senior year. And so I, I maintained a really strong relationship with him. And it really just opened my my eyes to the, the international perspective of urban planning as well. And after undergrad, I moved to Philadelphia and I did a year of service through AmeriCorps, which is like Peace Corps, but domestically. And I was working with immigrant communities in Philadelphia. And it really kind of tied all together because a lot of the communities I was working with were Sudanese communities. I leveraged a lot of the work that I'd done uh, with a professor in Uganda. And uh, the largest immigrant community in Philadelphia was actually the Liberian community. And I happened to be working with them a lot on their refugee green cards and citizenship applications. And interestingly enough, a lot of those Liberian refugees had been in camps in Ghana. And so they even spoke some Chui, which is uh, one of the largest or most widely spoken language in Ghana, which I learned a little bit of. And so we could speak a little bit together, uh, which was really fun. And um, it kind of brought a lot of the 
experiences from my background all together in one place. And that was a really transformational experience. So at that time, you did that for about a year. Is that right? Working with AmeriCorps? Yeah, I was in Philadelphia for one year doing that work. And through that lens, I was able to see just, again, the geography of opportunity. So I learned a lot more about refugee resettlement and um, how immigrant communities are really built from the ground up. At that time, a lot of refugees from Burma were coming. A lot of the, the Burmese refugees were coming and Iraqi refugee resettlement started. And I had some friends and I'd been learning Arabic. And so when the Iraqis started coming, um, I was more deeply involved with uh, some of the resettlement of that community. So I was able to see like the Liberians had been there for a long time. The Burmese and the Iraqis were just coming. And I was able to see you know, how decisions were made about where to initially settle these communities. And a lot of the decisions were, were kind of random. It was where are there apartments available for rent? that we can afford to place people, not conscious decisions necessarily around where is there access to local community services, where is there access to great transportation. And so this, uh, again, access to the geography of opportunity really fueled my interest in it, propelled me to apply to grad school in urban planning and explore these topics more deeply. Yeah. And so that was right around that time, you ended up going back to school. You wanted to pursue your studying even further. Where did you end up studying and what unraveled for you in those years? Yeah, so I applied to a bunch of places and um, I was really fortunate to get into MIT, which has an amazing urban planning program with a deep international perspective. So I headed up to Boston and I thought I would be on the first train out (laughs) as soon as I graduated back to Philadelphia, but I have stayed here. MIT was a really incredible experience. Um, just the students that I was able to work with and collaborate with, and then the professors that I had were really inspiring. I worked with a couple of professors really closely, Judith Tendler and Alice Amston. They're really both brilliant minds and incredible female professors. And during that time, I worked on some immigrant integration work again. Um, I ultimately did my thesis on making immigrant integration work in Philadelphia with a case study of the Liberian refugees. So I spent a lot of time going back to Philly as part of my thesis work there. And there was actually also an example of a Cambodian immigrant community that you worked with. And it has something to do with the community meaning, which I think is really interesting because it ties so closely into the work that you're doing today, which we'll get to in a moment here. But what was that example when you were at MIT with that community? Yeah, so MIT is in their planning program, they're really big on doing practical work. So for one semester, myself and my classmates were actually doing a practicum course where we worked with the city of Lowell on a neighborhood planning process. Um, And the neighborhood was largely Cambodian immigrants. And so we had prepared some community meeting information. We hosted a community meeting and um, we put together a bunch of slides and a presentation based on a lot of the research we did, you know, being on the ground in the community. This was a real aha moment for us because we were in our little bubble at MIT thinking that everybody loved affordable housing and everybody loved density and sustainability. And I remember we put up this slide where it was an image of like one of the downtown buildings. And then the next slide was the build. And we had 
done a rendering where we added like three or four more stories on top of it. And we thought this was great. We're increasing density here right where it needed to be near the train access. And when we did that build and showed that slide, the audience gasped. (laughs) They were like, no, they didn't want density. They didn't want change. They were really resistant to a lot of what we thought were kind of no-brainers. This is what the data showed. And that was a really eye-opening experience that what we've been prepared for with community meetings was collaborating with community members to create change. A lot of times, people who more often show up at communities don't want any change. Um, And it's a really difficult conversation. And facts alone are often not enough. I think that's a great pivot point to start to talk about after MIT and your career now leading Co-Urbanize. And I'm curious though, did it start right away? Did you jump right into Co-Urbanize and kind of figuring out those pieces, brainstorming, you know, prop tech, startup life kind of stuff? Or were there other stops along the way that you had to hit, you know, before you started really launching Co-Urbanize? Yeah, I had one stop along the way. After MIT, I worked at an urban development think tank called the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. It's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Their bread and butter is really around land taxation and value capture. It's really interesting and and very deeply important work. I was fortunate to work with Greg Ingram, um, who's an amazing economist, and we co-edited a book on land value capture. Unfortunately, I think not everybody is super excited about land taxation. (laughs) It's uh, pretty dry stuff. And although I was really passionate about the work, I wanted to move away from research and to move towards more like hands-on work and impacting change at a higher velocity. And I saw some of my friends and former colleagues from MIT who had moved into tech and they were really experiencing just high personal and professional growth. They were impacting change. And I started working with some of them on the side after work and I really enjoyed it. I loved solving the different problems. I loved learning different skills. And so I started kind of digging into looking at problems in the urban planning space. I started learning how to code. Thank you, Code Academy. I started talking to just lots of different types of people, people who attend planning meetings, people who don't, uh, municipal planners, affordable housing real estate developers, uh, market rate real estate developers. And I remember my aha moment was talking to an alum from MIT who was a real estate developer. And she said, any data we have on what the community thinks before we get to the meeting is gold. And that's when I realized we have a real buyer. We have a a big problem in the industry that a lot of people face. And we have an opportunity to create what I like to think of as a win-win-win. It's a win for community members when development meets community needs. It's a win for real estate developers when they can build projects that are better and more quickly. And it's a win for cities when this whole process moves smoothly. I love the aha moment there in speaking with all of those different win-win-wins. I love that. Okay, so at some point there, you realized that there was a what you called a real buyer with all that research and kind of thinking through the the win-win-wins. Um, what was that buyer? Who was that buyer? Was it a person? Was it an organization? What was kind of the cherry on top for that aha moment? The buyer for us is the the real estate owner and developer. It's the project team that is responsible for building a new project securing the entitlements and the approvals for that project and running the the community engagement process. I said it's the owner-developer. They're our primary customer. But that said, we also work with a lot of municipal planners. We work with 
towns and large cities that are building new projects and they can be comp plans, neighborhood plans, rezoning plans, sometimes park plans. One of the most unique projects that I've ever seen on Co-Urbanize was actually a zoo planning process where they were doing um, a new plan for a zoo in somewhere in Kansas, actually. Huh, interesting. So let's pause for a moment and actually formally introduce Co-Urbanize to the listeners. Those that don't know what Co-Urbanize is or what it does, give everybody an overview of the platform and kind of the essential mission that it rallies around. Co-Urbanize is a technology company that helps real estate developers transform how they design buildings, engage with the community, and manage projects. And there are two facets that make building real estate so challenging. The first is engaging the community to build support for a project. And the second is really managing communication across the team that's responsible for developing that project. And we started by solving that first problem, community engagement. So if you're not familiar, I always say, if you haven't seen Parks and Rec, (laughs) traditional community engagement, is done through public meetings. Typically, they're held weekdays after 5 p.m. These meetings are supposed to give community members a voice in what's being built in their neighborhoods. But unfortunately, oftentimes, the people who attend these meetings don't reflect the majority of their neighborhoods. A lot of the data shows 95% of meeting participants are actually whiter, richer, and older than the community. And this is something that you're calling the, the NIMBY dynamic, right? Yes. This is that NIMBY dynamic, not in my backyard. That's really sparking many of the housing crises in the metro areas across the country. And it costs the industry billions of dollars every year. And this is something that you have really honed in on. And sort of fundamentally speaking, you've made a note that this is both inequitable and non-inclusive. And that's a big push for Co-Urbanize. And so how do you start to unravel that challenge? And, and what, where is Co-Urbanize's place in that? Yeah. So the way that we unravel that challenge is by making it easier for more people to participate. It's really about democratizing what is supposed to be a very democratic process. So since we started the company, we've worked on over 400 projects to help teams scale their public outreach to hold more productive conversations and build community support. On Corbinize, like 86% of the projects have faced zero delays, which can cost companies hundreds of thousands of dollars every month. And that's actually because about 77% of the comments on Corbinize are positive. Which is probably a lot more than those in-person after 5 p.m. <laughs> community meetings, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's really two components that are behind why comments on Corbinize are more positive than that meeting. The first is teams start using Corbinize earlier in the process to ask people to start to shape plans before everything is fully baked. And the second, which is related, is we ask people questions that are more visionary about what they love about their community, what they'd like to see changed, asking people about placemaking aspects like what type of retail, parks, open space, programming that they'd like to see as part of a new development. So it's a lot different than at a community meeting when you're responding to fully baked plans and the tone and tenor of the conversation is, why shouldn't this happen? That makes a lot of sense. And, and before we get to the point of discuss, I want to dig into some of your first partners and clients, but I want to first actually touch on how sort of technically or from a user experience perspective when, we, when we're kind of having tech speak a little bit, how do these community members engage with Co-Urbanize? Do they go to a website? Do they pull it up on their mobile phone? Like what is the, what's that interface layer where these communities are able to leave that feedback? 
So it's both. People can go on, on a website, either on their computers or on their phone. And there's a lot of different tools and techniques that we use to reach community members and make sure that we're reaching them inclusively. So I'll rattle off a few different ways that are pretty common. If you're already going to a community meeting, um, what typically happens is, is the project team is running through a presentation. And on that presentation, they'll introduce Co-Urbanize and they might say, text yes to this phone number and you'll have it sent directly to your phone and you'll be able to sign up to get all of the updates from us. So that's a really common way. Another way is maybe you're a community member and you don't even know that this building or this site in your neighborhood is actually a project (laughs) until the cranes come in. We actually design and deliver these signs that project teams post um, letting people know, hey, we're working on revisioning the site and asking people a fun question about what they'd like to see there. So again, people can take out their phones, text an answer to that question and actually get the website link sent to them and and subscribe to get more information again. And then other ways are, of course, like through social media, email, and and neighborhood connections. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com slash blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. And so the early years of Co-Urbanize were in the early 2010s. And by, I think it was 2014, you said you connected with a really key partner that has been with you for a while. What was that partner and what was the impact of that as you were growing the tech company? So when we were first starting Co-Urbanize, I worked really closely with real estate teams to understand how deals got done. What were some of the challenges? What were the pain points? And we just rolled up our sleeves and, and worked with them on building a solution. So we worked on prototypes and mock-ups and and had lots and lots of feedback loops to validate this solution. And one of those partners that was really influential was Boston Properties. They're the fourth largest real estate office developer in the country. And when we had finished building our solution, um, we went back to them and invited them to be our first customer. And we started working with them in 2014 on a project in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we've continued to do a bunch more work uh, with them in Cambridge and, and elsewhere. And so I think, again, that sends out to me part of the success of Corbinize is really deeply understanding our customers and the problems that they have. So I'm curious about the early days of Co-Urbanize versus the, the days of Co-Urbanize today, modern times, right? And I'm specifically wondering what has changed, you know, what has changed in terms of the technology, how people are interfacing with Co-Urbanize, maybe how the sentiments of people have changed to some degree. And then also part part B would be, but also at the same time, what's stayed the same? Like what since you've almost been on ground zero with a lot of these projects across the country, what have you seen or what are those themes that you feel like are unraveling? So in terms of what's changed, what's stayed the same, I think that NIMBYism continues to grow and we're seeing it become a bigger issue in, in even many more markets. People are becoming more savvy around online conversations. And so sharing real facts about the project 
is really important to get ahead of conversations that can really spew misinformation on Nextdoor or on, on Twitter, for example. Another thing I think is ways to make things more inclusive is, is becoming increasingly important. Um, teams are thinking about this earlier in the process to make sure that vulnerable voices are being heard. That's something that really we do a lot with the text messaging. We do a lot with translation services, making sure that people can participate in English, Spanish, Arabic, and, and many more languages. And really integrating, I think, with on the ground strategies. So for example, like we worked with the city of Detroit and integrated with their streets team so that you have, I think the sweet spot is both an online and in-person strategy that really connect and marry well together. But one of the interesting things I think has changed when we started, real estate owner developers really just did not have much technology. And that continues today. I often say, Teams are building multi-hundred million dollar projects out of their notebooks in Outlook and Excel. (laughs) And what was interesting is uh, real estate teams started talking to us about needing an internal co-urbanize. So right now, co-urbanize facilitates external communication for them. But they needed a way to handle some of the internal communication across the project teams with not only internal stakeholders, but all of the consultants, the architects, the engineers, the GCs. Um, And so we're actually building another complementary product to help teams manage that internal communication right now. That makes total sense. So walk us through, if you would, the the different types of projects, um, example, you know, sizes or shapes, you know, what do they come in with Co-Urbanize? What are the different packages? Do you deploy kind of a one size fits all? Is the process always the same? If you would talk us through those projects. Yeah, well, I think every project has some unique elements, but there's a lot of underlying similarities that remain the same. So we can talk about three common types of projects on Corbinize. We do a lot of large mixed-use developments. And one example here is um, how JBG Smith, a developer in the, the DC metro area, used community feedback to get unanimous approval for its Crystal City redevelopment, which is now the, the home of the Amazon HQ2 site. We've continued to do more work with JBG Smith on some of the different facets of community engagement that they have there. A lot of it is really around placemaking and reimagining what a more of an office park that doesn't have a lot of housing or retail activation, how that can be transformed to be a big destination where people want to to live and work and stay after hours and come enjoy on weekends. Another common type is we see a lot of affordable housing projects. I think some of the conversations around affordable housing development have become even more adversarial and, and toxic. And it's a, it's a big part of our business is to make sure that we're supporting the teams behind bringing these projects to life. One example is uh, the Mary Ellen McCormick redevelopment in Boston. It's a billion-dollar project that includes the redevelopment of 1,000 existing units of public housing in addition to 2,000 units of affordable workforce and market rate housing. So this is a many years-long project. It includes relocation of existing tenants off-site while the redevelopment happens and then the relocation back. So there are many, many communication challenges that exist with this with this project. Um, and it's been a really exciting one to be a part of. And then lastly, the third project type that we work on are urban planning projects. So the Detroit um, project that I alluded to earlier, we helped the city work on their first sustainability plan that was a citywide plan. And I can 
share how the importance of translation and understanding the community really helped them gather over a thousand comments for this first of a kind initiative. They had a streets team that was deployed to to really go into communities and build awareness for the project. And they were able to connect people through text message, connect people through collateral in Arabic and Spanish to participate online um, and also invite them to meetings. And I think one of the most interesting things they did is at community meetings, they integrated Corbinize. They would pull up their Corbinize website and ask people live questions and ask them to text in pull responses and then hit the refresh button and, and show the results right there in real time and really have a conversation that was more of a dialogue rather than just having a couple of people grab the mic and being able to dominate the opinions there. I have to imagine the integration of some of these translation and text services are just paramount in the success of Co-Urbanize, given the makeup of you know some of these different socioeconomic landscapes that you find yourselves working within. And it makes me think about this idea of leaning into technology. You know, our company is similar in that we really lean into technology and design within similar industries. Uh, we're obviously doing different types of work. But something that I'm curious about that comes to mind is, is a trend that that we've seen, and I'm curious if you have too, where they're depending on the person, depending on the organization, there's actually pushback to evolving this technology. Whereas I think the example you just gave was such a poignant one with regards to being able to connect with community that otherwise would be disconnected. How have you been successful with that digital first approach in what I think we all realize is mostly a very traditional setting? I think digital is really the backbone of what's happening online and at the in-person meetings. So people can still see what others are saying if they've been to the meetings or they um, only go to the website. You have one record of kind of all of the, the activity and the conversation that's happening at both places. So the goal is to increase information for all parties involved. And I think that's really powerful. Do you find that most cities or towns or, or you know organizations or groups you work with, do they push back on those ideas or are they mostly accepting of, I guess, what I would consider progressive solutions within the industry? What's your experience been? I think that we're seeing big cities and small cities are really leaning into it, um, being able to show real-time questions and answers. One example that comes to mind of a smaller community, Nashua, New Hampshire, they were doing a riverfront plan and they had a very tight schedule and it happened to coincide with the summer vacation months and a lot of people were traveling in their community. So they actually used Corbinize in lieu of any community meetings in person. And they were able to still get a lot of participation and validation and, and move quickly. I think we do run into some suburban communities where we have planners that have a lot of ownership over their process, don't want to move online. They want to keep things connected to that process that's largely in-person. But those are fewer and further between. I think generally, a lot of the board members, approval boards like city council, planning commission, planning board, zoning board they are really hungry for data to justify decisions and not just rely on the people who show up at every meeting. That's really intriguing. And, and it, it makes, again, it makes perfect sense when it's said out loud. But I think, you know, there's still such a, a stigma around technology in certain groups and in certain areas of the country within this industry. And I'm glad to hear that what you've been seeing, it's starting to turn over 
And that data is something that board members and organizations are hungry for. So that's great to hear. Karin, I'm really intrigued by everything that you're doing at Co-Urbanize, and I thank you for your time today. I don't want to go quite yet. As we start to wrap up, I'm, I'm still curious to learn a little bit more about where you personally see this digital feedback trend moving in the next one, two, three years. What should we be looking out for? And, and maybe even as a follow-up, how can groups or, or community members actually suggest that their board members and their town leadership bring this type of feedback tool to their own communities? Well, I think that in trends over the next few years, we're seeing a, a growing movement of people who are really progressive and excited about changing communities. The YIMBY, Yes in My Backyard movement, they're really propelling more density, more development, and more affordability for people who, who want to see change. And that's really exciting. I think we're also seeing a trend that owners and developers are excited to embrace technology. They're excited for change and to change how they work. That placemaking is not just about a, a coffee shop or, or art, but it's actually creating a place for a diverse group of people to come together and thrive. And that's really gets at the heart of our mission at Co-Urbanize is about building better communities. Yeah, I love that. That makes perfect sense. And um, I think you're actually going to mention a little bit of a guide that you have a little bit later in the podcast before we wrap up. So I'm definitely excited to share that link and make sure everyone can read that. One of my favorite questions on this podcast series is to ask you, someone with so much experience, who you feel like we should be paying attention to out there that's doing just really great, groundbreaking or inspiring work. Yeah, uh, there's so many, um, but a few that come top of mind uh, are friends over at Remix. I think they're, what they're doing for uh, transportation planning is, is really awesome. They provide tools to help transportation planners think about mobility and inclusion in a really interesting way. There's a group of professors at Boston University who've done really fascinating research about uh, how community meetings are actually very undemocratic. And they looked at data about who attends meetings, how decisions are made, and they found, kind of no surprise, but overwhelmingly, uh, the process is undemocratic and the majority of people show up are overwhelmingly opposed to housing development. And so I think that has real ramifications for how our cities are being built. And then one more that I want to give a shout out to, I recently met this group. It's a nonprofit group, Housing Navigator. And what they are doing is, is really important work to build a technology tool that makes it really easy for community members to find affordable housing units and be able to apply for them all in one place. And for people who might not be familiar, this is an extremely onerous, difficult process. It's actually one of the number one comments we receive on Co-Urbanize is from community members looking to apply for affordable housing units. It's just a really difficult thing. And I think anything we can do to make that process easier is so valuable. We will be sure to go ahead and link all of those in the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to follow up and take a look at those, go ahead and head over to our website or the show notes in your podcast app. Take a look at those, click over to those websites, learn more. Karin, thank you again so much for joining me today. There's only one more thing to do, and that is to roll the red carpet out for you and say... What are you up to? Where can people find you online? Give us all those details. Okay, well, thanks so much for having us. Uh, we're active on Twitter and LinkedIn, so give Co-Urbanize a, a follow there. Uh, I'm also happy to connect with listeners on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. 
You can also check out our take on industry issues and hot topics like placemaking by visiting our site and we'll, we'll share our um, guide below as well. Fantastic. And again, for listeners, so much good information in the show notes on this podcast with Co-Urbanize. So Karin, thank you again so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.